Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Swear Jar, the official podcast of the Academy of Business Communications, where we tell it like it is about corporate and employee communications and use occasionally colorful language to raise money for worthy causes. My name is Elizabeth Williams. And I'm Andrew Brown. Today, we're going to talk about something that all organizations face to varying degrees. It's when leaders suck at communications. All right, well, let's start at the beginning. What do we mean when we say leaders suck at communications? Well, leaders, and and by that, we're really looking at executives and senior leadership people. Executives' flavor of sucking at communications can fall into three broad buckets. And the first is that they just don't view it as a strategic thing to do. The second is that they don't communicate when they really should or they delegate it to someone, which they really shouldn't. And the third is that they just do it wrong. They do it at the wrong time. They do the wrong message. They don't listen they don't offer context, or they're just terrible at delivering the communications. And of course, there are times when a leader who sucks at communication spends time doing the wrong actions and not doing anything at all, essentially absolving themselves or shirking the responsibility to communicate well. But before we can address how leaders suck, we really have to delve into understanding why they can suck so very badly. And I believe it starts with a fundamental assumption that underlies all of these three buckets. And the assumption is that they've never really, really valued communicating. The result is leaders pawning off communication to other members of their teams. Unfortunately, that does still communicate something. And it does so through the organization. It sends the message that communication skills aren't required or valuable leadership skills. And of course, that assumption gets fortified in the organization's culture. And just as a quick sign for yourself, you are in an organization like that that has held that assumption when you've got no employee communications budget and the notion of one is truly scoffed at. Yeah, exactly. I think you also know that you're in one of those organizations when communication is sporadic and kind of random. So these random acts of communication are another symptom. And I actually, as you know, I blame MBA programs. Um, If you look, the majority of our leaders come out of MBA programs. And it's interesting that in Canada, we have 50 plus MBA programs across the country in English and French, only five have a required communications course for their students, and only 15 offer any kind of communications as an elective. And that sends a pretty clear message to future executives that communications isn't important, it isn't strategic, and it's some fluffy thing. Oh, I find that astonishing. Not surprising because that's also been going on for years, even when I was doing my master's degree communications was at the bottom of the list. It came after ethics in business. But, Amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh, ridiculous. Another reason I think that leaders relinquish their responsibility for communicating well is that they truly haven't developed the skills and they're afraid of putting themselves in situations where they could be doing something not as well as they think they should be doing or that they're just simply not good at. And of course, we know that fear can be a good thing. It tells you to take action, to protect yourself. But that protective action shouldn't be allowed to damage an organization's well-being and those of the employees. 
And again, I think this is where these MBA programs are letting these future leaders down by not giving them that safe space for a couple of years where they can actually go practice this stuff. What they get good at in MBA school is putting far too much stuff on a PowerPoint and looking at case studies. And I think these schools miss the opportunity to help them build these skills because it's not rocket science, right? Anyone can learn how to use framing. Anyone can learn how to use narrative storytelling. And we had a, a guest on recently, Paul Smith, talking about storytelling. It's not a talent. It's something that great leaders learn how to use and it's a tool in their toolbox. Basic rhetorical stuff like how to use body language, how to use metaphor, how to use tone to be effective, how to negotiate with people. That's a communication skill. Agreed. To me, it's also understanding and tuning into messages that resonate with audiences and knowing how to deliver messages to them. And that's using the right tools, checking out the right timing. It's about active listening. It's about emotionally connecting and reading the room. It's having a sense of empathy and building that. It's observing behaviors and knowing how to adapt and be nimble. So you've kind of left me with the big one though, right? Even if they understand the strategic value of communications, and even if they've got a few chops on their side, they can still really drop the ball spectacularly. And I think there's a few reasons for that. The first is these reluctant communicators who are sort of poor at communication and don't really value it enough to go get good at it. Because we've, we've talked about these are not particularly difficult skills to acquire. You just have to go learn and then practice it. Another thing you and I both hear a lot, which is basically bullshit, is that they are just so busy they don't actually have time to communicate or to learn to do it well. And the irony here is executives spend between 70 and 80%, I would argue more, of their time communicating. So I just don't buy it, right? They're on calls, they're in meetings, they're reading, they're writing. That's communication, folks. And this notion that they don't have time to do it is just complete BS. There's a feeling often out there that leaders don't have the ability to empathize with employees and how they're feeling and, and to your point, connecting at an emotional level. I don't actually think that's true. I think it's more that they don't really understand the value of empathy because that underpins communication. I think a lot of times too, it's no one has actually told the emperor they're naked, right? So there's not a lot mm -hmm. of people standing up and saying, you know what, your communication skills aren't where they should be. And let's get a, a strategy in place to improve them. And oftentimes in, in our experience, that comes about when there's now a pressing need, right? There's a burning right. platform. We have to make some big change in the organization or a, a thing like say a pandemic is acting upon our organization. And now suddenly we need to figure out how to communicate, which is really not the best way or time mm. to <laughs> develop mm. your skills is, you know, when you're under fire. The interesting thing is many executives we work with expect others in their team to have acquired these skills, right? And people in finance and product development operations should be understanding their employees and making communications that are effective for them. But somehow as you get further up the ladder, there's often a feeling that it's really not their job. Yeah, um, it's I, astonishing when the, there is that sense of neglect. In fact, it's ironic because we had a discussion in an earlier podcast about how communications is sometimes seen as a cure-all. So it, it can float back between the two sides. Communications is everything or communications is undervalued completely. Going back to MBA programs, these are people who are trained to manage what they can measure and ignore the rest. And our experience certainly is that most organizations do a pretty bad job of assessing the impact of good or bad communication on employees and on the overall health of the organization. And again, the irony there is that 
every study you read from Deloitte and PwC says the top priorities for executives globally are engagement and culture and finding and retaining top talent. But I'm pretty sure that most of them don't have the data to properly connect communications and those big goals. Oh, yeah, it's complete irony that a segment of the organization that is so driven by numbers shies away from numbers on something that is so critical to organizational success as communications. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to build on uh, one of your earlier points, and it really speaks to the value that leaders put on communications. And it's something that we've found in research working with leaders, and it's what we've often called the great communicators fallacy. You know the premise, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a proven cognitive state where people who have low ability at executing a task actually come to think that they have an amazing proficiency over it. Like me and golfing. (laughs) And I have a list that's far too great to, to say yes. So people think that they're better at something than they really are. And when it comes to the great communicators fallacy, it's even more insidious because whereas you only get on the golf course a few times a year, leaders believe they're great communicators because they do write stuff. So they think, hey, you know, they write well. And they speak at meetings. So they think, hey, you know what? They're gifted at inspiring people through speech. Leaders also participate in meetings. So they come to think they're great facilitators and collaborators and sources of innovation. And leaders are often involved in meetings with a broad range of people. So they think they're great listeners and have tremendous empathy and understand people's motivations and fears and learning styles and all that. So by virtue of them doing it, they think that they have built up a dexterity. And of course, leaders who truly suck at communications, but believe that they're fucking awesome at doing these things, actually erode their own credibility as leaders over time because employees who want leaders to communicate well see that the communicators aren't aware of their own gaps. And back to, again, there's there's a lot of people around them who are in their little bubble and no one's really saying, you know, Andrew, you're, mm-hmm. you're not really being effective at this. You know, one of the other things that can make even a fairly competent communicative leaders suck is the context. For example, when we have high stress situations, leaders like all of us find it much more difficult to make sense of the large amounts of information or circumstances that are uncertain or unfamiliar. So true. Just before we turn to how our listeners, those fearless communicators out there, can address these harsh realities, you know, I think we should probably take a moment and consider the implications when leaders can't communicate well with their employees and other key stakeholders. So what do you see as the most damaging consequences of having a leader who sucks at communications. I mean, where do you even start with that, right? I would say there's two things I think come to mind. The first is motivation, which is, I think, a a casualty. You know that I think the whole idea of engagement is complete bullshit, but I think that motivation is, is what we're actually looking for when we talk about engagement. And so, you know, when you've got employees who feel out of the loop, when they can't put their work or see their work in a bigger context, that erodes meaning. We all want meaning Mm -hmm. in work. When you erode meaning, you erode productivity, and then you, of course, hobble any innovation that you might want to have or continuous improvement. And to an extent, I think you can offset that by enabling your frontline managers, and we talk a lot about that in our work, to be good communicators, but you can't entirely mitigate it. 
I would say, though, the far bigger casualty is trust. Executives are in the business of building trust with employees, with investors, with customers, sometimes with regulators. And when you don't have trust, you can't actually realistically expect anyone to be motivated or, in air quotes, engaged. So where there's low trust, you can't then have a thriving culture. So culture is now a casualty. Where there's low trust, you can't expect to have commitment. So you've now got an issue with retention. The bottom line uh, on, on all of this really is that your employer brand now has very little equity. And you end up then with really high turnover and a bunch of people sitting around who don't really give a shit. And this is something I think, sadly, that you can't push down to your frontline managers to offset or to compensate for because they too will lack trust in the organization and in the leadership. I think you've summed it up so well, talking about motivation and trust. And those are things that we're constantly dealing with when speaking to clients and colleagues, the efforts that are required to build those things up and how tenuous they can be and how precious they are. Leaders who suck at communications really jeopardize those two big items, motivation and trust. So those reasons alone would want to reduce instances of leaders sucking at communication. And of course, the flip side is why do organizations need leaders who communicate well with employees? Any thoughts or, or stories that sum up why leaders who are great at communicating with their employees are great for the organization. Oh my God. Yeah. It's interesting. We're recording this in May of 2020 in the middle of the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. I am actually looking forward to some of the stories that I hope are going to emerge about leaders really stepping up in a completely uncharted bit of the world. But change is probably the big one. And you and I do a lot of work with executives who are trying to communicate change. So I would say that the best thing you can bring to your organization as a great communicative leader is the ability to help the organization manage through change. I'm thinking of a financial services organization, a very large one that was making the unpopular move of moving a number of functions from North American offices to offshore locations. You know, it's a kind of an unpopular thing internally, obviously, because some people are getting laid off, but it's not always the, the nicest thing for your reputation if the general public or the business community sees you moving these roles offshore. So there was a huge amount of sensitivity around this, and they were ready to pull the whole thing in February of a few years ago. And their communications team, I think, did incredible work. And they brought in a plan that helped them understand why pulling the trigger in February was maybe not the best idea and why they needed to spend a month really communicating and understanding. And I think some of the things that I remember that they did that I just thought were so awesome is the first thing they did is they pulled together leader taught tracks, not just for the CEO, but for all of his direct reports and for all of the regional leaders, both in North America and in the places where they were pushing these new offshore jobs. And then they pulled together these talk tracks and webinars. And so they actually trained these leaders to walk through these key messages. They helped them understand why they needed to have consistent messaging. And not all of the leaders were on board. And there was a lot of eye rolling and a lot of Dunning-Kruger effect to play there. You know, I don't need any help doing this. But I think that deep down, they probably felt like they were getting some support. For frontline managers, they built these awesome toolkits with FAQs and you know all the facts and figures 
they needed so that they could adapt them for the specific needs of their teams. They actively worked through a bunch of scenarios in case the media took an interest in these jobs moving offshore, because this was a high profile company. And they built all the holding statements and the talk tracks again that they would need if the media came at them. So now we had this leaders who not only felt like they had communication skills and messages, but they felt protected in case something happened, right? And I think back to your earlier point about leaders who just get kind of frozen like a deer in the headlights and they don't do any communicating because they feel like, well, I'm not going to be good at it and I don't want to make it worse. Mm -hmm. And so all of this work sort of when the time came in March to make these changes, the leaders across the globe felt supported. And we knew this because this team had surveyed the heck out of the leaders to make sure they felt supported. They also surveyed the frontline managers before they sent everything out to make sure they felt confident. And even though there was some risk that the news would get out because they were disseminating it fairly deep into the organization, I think the fact that they signaled that they trusted these frontline leaders to keep this quiet and keep this confidential really helped build, again, build trust and build that culture. And so after they made the changes and the changes of course were hard and not popular, they did the final job, which so many communications teams don't do, which is they surveyed the employees and learned that even though they didn't agree with the changes, many of them because they were losing their jobs and many philosophically didn't agree with sending stuff offshore, but they at least understood the reasons for the change. And so they were able, this team, to go back to the leadership and say, here is the demonstrable value of planning and executing communications well, of investing in the skills of leaders, and in listening to your employees and your frontline managers. I love that story because not only does it hit on the emotional aspect of leaders who are just like anyone and, and stressed and concerned and want to do a good job and the support that was provided them, but it also spoke to the outcomes of the initiative and looping back and doing that measurement at the end reinforced and demonstrated to those very quantifiable focused leaders, hey, this actually did have an impact that is demonstrable. And that's really very critical to leaders. I love that example. I'd add when we're tackling this idea of how do we get leaders to communicate better, there's some things to be drawn from that example, because there is the notion of building support and building trust. I believe that leaders, for all their faults, they really care passionately about their organization and their role and their teams and their employees. And so the motivation to improve the ability to communicate is there. Sometimes it's buried under a couple of tons of bullshit and bravado, but it's there, right? <laughs> I love that systematic story, Elizabeth. I'd like to suggest perhaps uh, another micro story or suggestion of one possible way of tackling this. I'd start with what causes leaders to shift their habits, and it is numbers. It's quantifiable. So if it's a case of business as usual, I, that is not in the midst of a crisis, I'd say start by collecting some benchmark data on something very small, and that could be a leader's pet project, and see what, how, and when he or she communicates with the teams responsible for executing that project and then tracking how that project is progressing over time and how many setbacks or delays it has. Maybe sit in on some project meetings and observe, interview team members formally or informally and check the documents and directives that leaders use. And you can even do sort of a mini post-mortem and quantify the dollars spent, hard dollars, soft dollars spent on 
having to reiterate or clarify or inspire, redirect, correct activities. Gathering some of that hard data is very reassuring for folks. And maybe, who knows, if you're feeling a bit more bold, do a department-wide assessment of something simple like a leader's directive on and that's placed on an internet or through an email and ask, hey, how many people understand what they're supposed to do? And of course, what you said earlier, why? Because we know the why and the why now is really important because it connects people to the leaders and the organization, which you were saying earlier about trust and motivation. So if people can do those little micro tests along the way, they'll have a, a better sense of some quantifiables that they can show to their leaders. And let's not forget the whole power of influence, right? So leaders, like all of us, learn from people they think are credible and they admire. And so I think a nice add-on to focusing on a pet project is also looking at who these leaders hold in some esteem. They also are influenced uh, and we can look for people that we can leverage. One thing that I often do is I say, well, you know, what's your favorite TED Talk of all time? Because they watch mm -hmm. TED Talks. And maybe we can look at that TED Talk and see what is it that makes it powerful for you? Is it the subject or is it in fact, also the way in which the material is delivered or communicated to you. If we're planning on helping our leaders become better, they're going to need to see an impact on their effort. And so we probably want to choose one project like that pet project or even a skill where we can have a positive impact. And I would say if you're that in-house communicator who is anxiously telling the emperor they're just a little naked, you may want to bring in some outside help. We all know that consultants, even though they're saying the same thing, bring a lot more credibility. And many of them also bring specialized skills. I'm thinking of our friend, Paul Smith. We recently interviewed him for another podcast who's written a bunch of books on how to use stories to move forward in corporate projects and corporate objectives. You want to make sure that if you find something that sounds compelling to one of these executives, you want to get strike while the fire's hot, right? Before they move mm -hmm. on to something else and see if it's something that your leader could be inspired by and all of that. And in fact, if you think that storytelling is something that's interesting, we actually have a few of Paul's books to give away. So if you send us your email, we will enter you in a draw for one of these books. Excellent. It occurs to me that, and you've probably seen this time and time again, leaders, one of their core skills is being able to see the big picture, you know, seeing the implications for actions on many part of the organization. That means that they're drawn towards solutions that can be comprehensive in nature, big solutions. And I'm going to do a shameless shill for a new product that we're bringing out. And we have a complete program to help organizations optimize their employee communications in a post-COVID-19 world or a post-crisis situation. And it helps fearless communicators because it's comprehensive. It provides leaders with the confidence to communicate more effectively. I'm very excited about our back on track program. So watch our website for that. It feels like we've covered a lot of ground today in a very short time. We've talked about what we mean when we say that leaders suck at communications. Uh, we've talked about the reasons that leaders suck at communications. We talked about the role that context plays that in causing leaders sometimes to suck at communicating the huge implications in terms of trust and motivation for organizations when their leaders aren't good communicators. And we've certainly talked about why we need to fix that and how we can address it when they do suck, and even some of the underlying causes of the general inherent suckiness of executives when it comes to communications. <laughs> Did I miss anything? Yeah. No, no, yeah, I think that covers everything. You're right. It feels like we've covered a lot of ground. I'm a combination of exhausted and invigorated by this. So <laughs> let's take a minute and highlight a couple of resources that have caught our eyes recently. Elizabeth, what's taking your mind space? 
well, you know what? I'm actually rereading. This is what happens when you clean up your office. I uncovered this book I read a couple of years ago when it was first published, and it's called The Little Black Book of Change, and it's by Paul Adams and Mike Straw. It's published by Capstone, and it is about seven shifts for effective change management. So they talk about the need to let go of the past, the need to develop ambition and vision, uh, how to build engagement, how to work through organizational DNA, how to stay focused. And, and the big one that I like is how do they deal with setbacks? So mm. using setbacks, in fact, as a way to push forward. So it's a small book. It's maybe 120, 130 pages. So you can read it in a single sitting. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. And it seemed very timely given where we are. Managing change successfully requires a careful balance of a number of things. What are you reading or looking at? You know, last podcast, I've mentioned Alfie Cohn's Punished by Reward, which is really relevant given today's topic. The other things that have caught my eye, I've been speaking to our talented intern, Sarah, and we were talking about what goes on in people's brains during important transactions when it comes to making purchase decisions. And so the two pieces that have always run true for me, first is why we buy by Paco Underhill. And it's a brilliant explanation of how humans respond to our physical environments when it comes to making purchase decisions. And then I go back to another great book called Don't Make Me Think. And it's a seminal work by Stephen Krug. It talks about how humans respond to purchasing online, really because it's about the basics of web interface design. And both of them together address the human physiology of making important decisions. I echo the Paco Underhill stuff. I actually use that when I teach marketing. It's one of my mm. core books. And there are some excellent videos that he's recorded uh, that oh, I talk didn't know about that. buying habits. So yeah, so we'll put some links in the show notes to those two books and to Paco Underhill's additional work because it's really fascinating. And I think he's done a bit of work as well with online purchasing. That's terrific. I'll watch for that myself. Mm -hmm. There we go. Well, I think that's it for us. Thank you so much for joining and a big shout out to our talented intern, Sarah, for bringing these resources forward. And if you like this podcast, do us a favor and leave a rating or better still subscribe. And of course, check out the show notes and resources at academyofbusinesscommunications.com. See you next time. Bye.